0: Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns-Walker. Together, we welcome you to the Butterfly Forecast. Ah, so glad that, um... You could join us today.
1: Yes, thank you for having me. I'm really excited.
2: I feel like there's already such a great synergy between us just because of our histories and our. there's a lot of overlap randomly, which is so cool.
0: I really think in life, there's nothing more confirming than keep bumping into the same people in different places. Mm.
1: I, I always go back to the first time I met Mel and I was a mess. Like, <laughs> I was just in such a dark space. I felt so confused and so lost. And I think I said something to her and then she like started talking to me and I was like, can we walk outside or something? We end up outside on the porch of where we were at and I'm just bawling, crying to her in her arms. And I'm like, I feel so lost. Like, I just, I was in such a a dark space and didn't feel like I had any clarity on which way to navigate this thing we call life. And I remember her just giving me some advice and just being like, you got this, like you're figuring it out, like it's going to all be okay. And at the time, I obviously did not believe that. I was like, you don't know. And and it's crazy to fast forward, what, nine, 10 years later. And you see I was right. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you you were so right. And I'm like, holy crap. Like she was so right.
2: Yeah. That is so funny. I remember that night. One of the things that we settled on speaking about today, which I'm really excited about, is how to be comfortable in the unknown. Smisha, I'm curious, what do you consider the unknown? Like, what is your definition of the unknown?
0: (laughs) Everything that's in front of us and nothing that's behind us. (laughs) 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 I mean, we all know that we live in infinity. It's just sometimes people's myths Uh, trick people into thinking there's more permanence. Like, I don't know, Ogi, you were talking about um, how change is inevitable. And you were also talking about that we have to understand that we're living other people's perceptions. I think the unknown is what lies outside of that. What if we didn't follow what everyone said was reality? What about you guys? What do you think of as the unknown?
1: I agree with you in that sense, right? I think the unknown is the spaces in between, right? It's the space of us um, figuring out who we really are in this world um, against the backdrop of everything society has told us to be true when you really think about it, it's really about doing like the internal work, right? Which is hard because the internal life, well, the internal life and the intangible dreams of that space is what really has a tangible effect on the world. And so I think it's really important for us to find spaces or cultivate spaces for us to tap into the spaces that we call the unknown, right? The spaces of uncertainty, because it allows us to detach from the myth of what we've been taught to be true about safety and security.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think it's a great disservice that people have grown up with everywhere, trusting that whatever culture they were born into has the truth or keys to the truth and tells the true story about the rest of humanity. And so you get your placement based on what you were born into and that, not just that birth order of your family of origin, but the pecking order, which is just, you know, so full of core lore about who you are, who you're not. And I feel like from the beginning, we need that inner work.
1: right? it really highlights for me the power of the mind right like you indoctrinated at such a young age to accept someone else's imagination as your own right and it for me it just really hits home how our most powerful currency isn't money it isn't anything material it's our mental state Right. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of Edward Bernays, who they call the father of um, public relations, like his whole thing was understanding the power of the mind, because he said, if you understand the power of the mind and you can grab hold of someone's imagination, then you basically control their life. And so for me, what you just said right now is just reiterating that. Right? It's reiterating the importance of our mental state, the importance of our imagination, and just really the importance of reframing the way that we understand mental health, right? Mm. I think that we often understand mental health through the lens of an illness or a state of being dis-eased. And that's a part of it, but it's a whole spectrum of what that really looks like and what that entails.
0: Yes. And Since we don't really talk about things outside of that, that creates kind of a false construct. It's almost like we are living in a false world that's been built based on just what you're describing, Ogi, and we don't even know it. And that's why I've heard conversations with the three of us where we're talking to someone else and that someone zooms into us and says, Why don't people talk about this? Don't you guys experience that on a daily basis where people are longing for where you want to go? They want to talk about the real stuff and they're longing just like you were sharing about your vulnerable time with Mel, but still you were just longing for the real conversation and you knew you could have it with her, which is incredible. And, Mel, I bet you wouldn't have gone outside with just anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. I think it
2: also just kind of connected me to her where I felt like on some level I was just tracking you, Mm -hmm. which is why I'd always invite you to like when Julie came to the shop or Mm -hmm. kind of kept you in that cipher. To me, the part about all this that bugs me out is how we don't know. We don't know for so long whose beliefs were we've adopted and how mm-hmm. they're playing out in our lives. I mean, I, I remember a session I had with you, Smushy, a while, a long time ago. And you kind of made me question my connection to my creator. And you're like, what if I told you that you believe in a false creator, not your creator? I forgot how you, you said it. But it sent me on this whole journey where I realized that I had just adopted my mom's God, like my mom's definition of God, my mom's idea of God. And I didn't really believe in that God, but that was the God that I was worshiping or praying to. And when I would do something that I felt guilty about, I wouldn't go to the God because I thought that that God would judge me or you know, I had this entire relationship with my creator that belonged to somebody else that had been created by something else. And then I had to really, really go in and it took me a long time. And I would pray to God every day. I'm like, please connect me to you as you are not what I think you are. Please increase my connection to you. And also just show yourself to me. Mm -hmm. And it was so liberating and amazing and incredible. And I finally was able to have a relationship with a what I thought or what I knew in my core was what a creator is. And that's something so deeply personal, but it just made me also r- realize how many of us have these relationships with our moms because we live in them for nine months. I mean, we come out of them. And that's just your mom. That's not even the culture that you're born into. It's not the city that you're born into. It's not the projection you get from friends, from like if you went to a school
0: that, you know, there's so much we have to lift. That's so true. I mean, Oki, in your film, Invisible Portraits, isn't that what you're raising this astonishing truth and telling people stories about what they were born into how they were not witnessed in their truth. Just exactly what you're sharing, Smishia. Like We're born into the mythology of who you are, and the truth is nobody's in the right place because none of it is true. Because we don't have these dialogues about our truth, it stays hidden. Um, you know, my parents moved from Chicago, from the city to the suburbs. And when I went to school, you had to write in those days your ethnicity. And I don't know what my mother had written, but she'd written about her gypsy heritage. And then no one would go near me the kids wouldn't go near me, the teachers wouldn't go near me. They said they'd never seen anyone who looked like me. And the teachers, as if I was deaf, when I walked down the hall in first grade, they would say, if you look close enough, you can see the horns on the top of her head. Now, what's crazy is I was like, hmm, where are they? (laughs) <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they're supposed to be the authorities. They're teaching me. I don't know anything. I'm a first grader. I'm like, wow, this is revelatory. I wouldn't have told my family I was too ashamed. If it weren't for my best friend who came and he overheard it, he was like, don't you believe them? Don't you believe them? There's nothing up there. Here, I'll feel up there. But what, how many years do people go? with all societal fear, hatred, mythology heaped on one small person. And then you're participating, you know, you're like, oh, excuse me, pardon me for my horns. Ogie, were you always a storyteller?
1: Um, I think we all are, right? I think that everyone is a storyteller. I think the mediums that we tell stories in are different. But I think we were all storytellers because we all have a story to tell, right? Like when you're in communion with your friends, right? You all are participating in storytelling, right? As someone who may identify as a baker, as they're baking various goods and patries, like that's their form of storytelling. And so I think that, yeah, I'm a, I've always been a storyteller because I think that we're in innately that, like we're born into that position or into that role.
0: But what about the way you seem to kind of zone in to the piece of the story that's been missing?
1: I'm really able to do that because I'm very curious. And oftentimes I tend to follow my curiosity. I'm able to zone in on that because I have taken responsibility for my own healing journey, right? I think for me as I start to really hold myself accountable to my healing, it had me to start asking better questions, right? It had me to start doing so much inner work and shadow work that I had no choice um, but to zone in and hone in on various aspects of just not my life, but the world and culture. And so prior to me stepping into this healing space, I wasn't able to do that, right? Because as we've been talking about prior is we've assimilated ourselves into this myth of who we think we should be. And we've learned to shrink ourselves, right? And so when you're living in installments, I think it's really hard for you to see things in its wholeness. And when i decided to really become whole because I understood what that meant, It allowed me to just start asking better questions and to really examine myself in its entirety.
2: Wow. I love living in installments.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's doable. That's a word. It's doable. (laughs) Mm. What do you guys think needs to happen before change happens? I mean, Ogi, the practice you're talking about, living life in installments, is so important because then we stay current. And if we're current with ourselves and the universe that we inherited, then that's sort of like a hologram of the bigger picture reality. What is it that has to be in place so that we are prepared for change, we expect change, and we all have the same understanding that change is inevitable?
1: I mean, in my opinion, I think it really goes back to what, you know, what we're choosing to talk about in this series, which is really the power of the mind, right? Because what we're up against is an ideology. It's a belief system. And so until that internal work happens, um, it's quite hard to see the external revelations or revolutions that you want to manifest, right? It kind of goes back to what Gil Scott Hearn said when he said, the revolution won't be televised, right? Right. Um, What he meant is that it has to be an internal revolution before you can see it externally. And so I think in order for us to even start to manifest the life that we're all worthy of, the life that we all deserve, um, a life where we're not only treated with dignity and care, but we're also giving that out, the internal work has to happen. And that's hard, right? That's really, really hard. Most people don't want to do that because you have to not only hold yourself accountable, um, but you have to take responsibility for your life and take over the agency of your life. And Mm. when you've been conditioned to do the complete opposite, it can seem overwhelming and sometimes impossible. I mean, there's just so many layers to that, right? I think that community plays a huge part in that because if you're able to build a community around you that can reflect back to you who you truly are in the moments that you forget, that can help spur, right, that revolution that needs to happen internally. Mm -hmm. But then it also goes back to what Mel was saying, right? Like, what does your spiritual practice look like for you, right? And not being wedded to this idea of a spiritual practice being religion, right? I think a spiritual practice is completely different from religion. And I think a lot of people misconstrue the two. Mm -hmm. For me, it really boils down to a lot of internal work, right? A lot of healing, which is ripe for the moment that we're in right now, right? I think if anything is to come out beautiful out of this global pandemic, I think it would be the fact that this pandemic has lifted the veils for so many of us, where it's laid the foundation for so many of us to question not only the things that we've been taught to be true, but to question how we show up in that. And so Mm -hmm. many people are having their own personal reckoning in addition to the collective reckoning that's happening right now where you have so many people in their relationships, switching jobs, like leaving cities, like there's just so much happening right now which is how we got to the the theme of rebirth, right? I truly feel like that is happening on a personal and a global scale, which I think is beautiful, but it's also scary because it makes us challenge this binary thinking of the illusion of safety, the illusion of security right? Going into axiology, right? The theory of value that Edwin Nichols and Dr. Joy DeGru so greatly educates us on, which Mm -hmm. is this idea of in Western culture, how we have so embedded ourselves in European theories of value, which is the highest value lies in the object, right? And you see that pervasive throughout our society, right? Like you see that how in the summer of 2020, most folks that were not Black were really invested in property damage versus um, lives being stolen, right? And so when you are viewing value in external things versus viewing value from an internal state, there's bound to be tension. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, we need to heal, (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Well, if we don't even know that the reason we are here is to have a relationship with life, have a relationship with the Creator, have a relationship with ourself, with our bodies, and with every person that exists, we don't understand that humanity is a single body organism. We're one organism. We understand that we're a planet, and in physics, we understand that in atomic structures, the truth is every atom is connected to every other atom, directly or indirectly, but still connected. We are the only species that doesn't know that it's connected to one another. And to me, that's why why we don't do the healing work. And you're talking about this inner work, which is exciting and the rebirth and the it's dynamic but you see if you don't acknowledge that you're in pain and you cause pain now how in the world can you address wait there's something missing from me. you know if somebody removed your arm, your leg, your liver, your brain, you would know immediately. But when we do with humans? We rationalize because we're not relationship-oriented. And maybe that's what the feminine also reiterates as the feminine is forced to function in cycles. We understand cycles of life. And so in a way, inherently birth to the grave or conception to the grave, we're aware because we carry it. We carry those stages within our bodies. We cannot remove ourselves from it. So, in a way, we cannot deny our connection to one another. If you ask someone, you know, if they ever had anybody in their life, anyone, anyone who meant something to them, it's their frame of reference when they meet other people. Like, I have children, the minute I had children, I looked at every child in the world as potentially my child. Mm. There wasn't a person I passed on the street who was of under 21 where I didn't go, you could be my kid. What what am I supposed to do here? How can I connect you better? Don't you guys think that's kind of uh, what we're in denial about? Mm. To go back to something that Ogi was saying,
2: Swishu, the other day we were talking and you were telling me, like, everything in the world tells you, like, go back to sleep, go back to sleep. Can you talk about that? Because I feel like that's something big, too.
0: Well, in that context, the world is temporary. We know that this is the workshop and not the gallery. This world is temporary. You can't, you sure you could prolong it if you're super duper healthy um, and you're blessed with all the good fortune in life that keeps you alive a little bit longer, but how much longer do you really think you can prolong life? And so every single thing here has already been established. And so it lures you back into understanding who you are in a temporary way, so you forget who you really are, because we're not physical entities in the end. You know, we go from concrete to abstract. Everything in this world, like gravity, is here to pull you down and backwards. Gravity never gives you a leg up. It will never give you a leg up, and it's not going to be like, you know who you could be tomorrow. I mean, I think everyone has their own little ways. That's the thing. You know, Oki, I saw that film of yours, and what I love about it, it's a kaleidoscope of experiences. It's a kaleidoscope of what people have done to people and the false projections that they were wearing until they weren't, until they went inside. And, And I think that the deeper we go, the less the world pulls you to it and tricks you to think you belong here. This world is a prison, really. Once you're done with your work here, you don't want to hang out. Ogi, you look like you're (laughs) percolating over there.
1: (laughs) No, I am. I'm, I'm like taking in everything you're saying because I so agree with it. I think it's so true, right? I think when you get a glimpse of your innate power, when you rediscover that you are a part of the thing that created you, there's no way that you will ever shrink yourself again. Right? Mm -hmm. Like when you have a lemon and you cut a slice of that lemon, that slice doesn't lose the attributes of that lemon. Right? It's just a slice of it now, but it still has all the attributes that that entire limit has. And I think about that often when I think about the thing that created me is so powerful. It's so abundant. It's so limitless that just because I'm no longer with it in another realm in that form, and I'm in this realm in this form, doesn't mean that I have any less of the potential or any less of the attributes of what brought me into existence in this life. Mm. And I think when people really understand that, then you understand that anything is possible. Yes. And for me, when I was reminded of that and when I rediscovered that innate truth about myself, I know that's when my life took a pivot
2: Mm. in one
1: of the most beautiful and abundant ways that I've ever existed. And there's no turning back, right? Like there's just no way I could ever go back.
0: Yes. But when did anyone teach you that, Ogi? When you were going through your transition in life, when everything felt so wrong, you had to choose it yourself. Isn't that crazy? The journey is lonely.
1: It is. But I also think, too. Going back to your theme about life being cyclical, like Mm -hmm. there's multiple rebirths that happen, right? Mm -hmm. And one thing is that Mel touched on this when she was doing the Levi's campaign and she talked about how it was like a a petal, like different petals were falling off of her, right? In the evolution. And I think it's reminding people that it doesn't just happen one time, right? Life isn't linear, Right, it's very cyclical, and there'll be so many moments where you're giving birth to a new version of yourself, and it's not easy, but it's so valuable and it's necessary and it's worthy. And so, for me, my most recent rebirth was mm. it spurred last year, right? Like when we were all mm. sheltered in place and really forced to sit with ourselves, right? Like you have no distractions, like you can't go nowhere, and so you're really forced to just really sit with your existence and sit with how you've been showing up in life. And for the most part, I didn't like it, right? Like, I didn't like the way that I had been existing because I was existing in ways that wasn't my full and authentic self, right? I was literally existing in installments. And it was really hard for me to see that in the everyday commotion of life. And it took a global pandemic for me to really sit back and have that reflection. And then to not only have that reflection, but to take accountability for it and then take responsibility for it. Mm. And I feel like now I'm like entering this new chapter of my life um, where I feel whole for the first time, 35 years old. And the first time I'm ever feeling whole or feeling like I am getting a taste of what wholeness feels like and looks like.
2: So Ogi, when you say you did your inner work, what were some of the processes you used to sort of get in where did you start Mm
1: -hmm. um i started yoga nine years ago it was one of the tools that taught me how to go in Mm -hmm. one of the tools was meditation and breath work and so when the pandemic happened and i was really forced to sit with like all these different complexities of myself and i'm weeding out okay what i like about myself what do i not like how do i want to change And when I was coming up against a lot of the things that I didn't like about myself and how I was showing up, I had to really sit with those things. And so the practices that I engaged in when it was very hard for me to sit with those things and reconcile them was a lot of breath work. Mm. Because whenever I'm up against things that I don't like or things that bring tension to my body, I tend to hold my breath or I tend to hold tension in my body. And so in those moments when I was sitting with okay, like this is a situation that happened, like how could you have shown up better? And I start to feel the tension come up in my body. I would just pause and do breath work. I meditate every day, um, but during the period of last year when I felt like I was entering this cycle of rebirth, I was meditating like three or four times a day. Mm. I also put myself into this mini silent meditation retreat where for four weeks I didn't communicate with anybody. Wow. I didn't watch TV. All I did was just read books that nurtured me on a spiritual and mental level and journaled. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just about finding the various practices that work for you.
2: Mm-hmm. And that four weeks sounds like a dream. It does. I, wish I could do that. Sounds like magic. Smooshy, what about you? What's your practice? Um, Prayer and meditation. I do yoga as well, but I just started. Mm -hmm. It's really important, I think, to process things out of your body because we hold so much in our body. And I've been getting better about processing things physically. And I think yoga has been helping me do that. Just even stretching every day and be having an awareness of why am I sore today? I didn't do anything with my arms or, yeah. and then realizing that I'm actually holding something in my arm mm. and why? Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. But otherwise, I mean, I think I have a regular practice of prayer and meditation. I talk to my creator a lot <laughs> mm. and it's like a real relationship and I'm very demanding. Same. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, show me. Me too. I'm like, make it evident and clear. I don't see it. Yeah, I'm always like... I know I'm really naive. You need to make it so clear that even I won't miss it. I need to see it in a way that only is for me. Please show me.
1: And every time I say that prayer, it comes. And you're like, Mm. okay, I got it.
2: I know. Well, I feel like it hits me over the head a few times. And then finally, I'm like, I see it. I finally see it a year later. (laughs) Well,
0: if you don't see it, you feel it. It's in your body somewhere. I feel like sometimes we can just like go into those aches and pains and physical symptoms and track it through that. You know, like, Mm. when did this start? Wait a minute. Where did I disconnect? How did it manifest in my neck instead of in my life awareness? And how have I held on to something? I thought I let go of this last time. And so your body Mm. is also your best friend. And gives you a heads up if you actually are listening or if you succeed how close you are to the creator or if you got your fingers crossed behind your back just a little bit.
1: (laughs) That's so true. And The Body Keeps Score, which is a book that I read that I think mm. is essential reading for everybody. And it talks about literally how our body keeps the score um, and mm-hmm. how we hold on to things. And it literally produces all these different states of dis-ease, whether it's respiratory issues or heart disease. Like it's it's an incredible book that I highly recommend that people read.
2: Yeah. I mean, I never thought about something as simple as like how you feel when you're eating is yes. so important because your body produces mm-hmm. chemistry for all your feelings. Yeah. And that blew my mind. It was so mind blowing. <laughs> so Ogi, just to bring it back a little bit to being in the unknown, i <laughs> um, I love that you didn't go to school for what you're doing. I mean, you're like a full bona fide filmmaker and you never went to school for it. And I think that oftentimes when I hear stories like that, I know it's kind of indication that somebody really did a deep dive into the unknown of who they are and were able to bring it out of them. Can you tell us just like a little bit, just because I love these kinds of stories of like how you got here, like how how did you become a filmmaker?
1: Um, a lot of resistance. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I, I had moved to LA, um, through a company that I was working with and six months into it, I decided to quit this company. I had worked with the company for four years in Houston, but then when I got to Houston, just the level of, homophobia, and racism, and sexism, and ableism, like, was really on display. And I was like, oh, I can't do this. And so I ended up quitting this um, job. And at the time, I was, like, 26. And so I had been in LA for six months. I didn't even know anybody. And one of the women who worked with me at the store was like, hey, like, come do a yoga class with me. And I was in a very dark space of depression at the time. And I was like, what is yoga? And she was like, just come and do it. You'll love it. And I go to this vinyasa yoga class and I absolutely hated it. I was like, this is awful. <laughs> I'm never doing this again. Not my cup of tea. So then two weeks later, another friend, a mutual friend from the store was like, come to this yoga class with me. I was like, girl, I did that. I'm not into that. And she's like, but this one's different. And I was like, fine, I'll go. And I go and it was a restorative yoga class where we were doing breath work and meditation. And I wept throughout this entire class. Mm. And I was like, wow, like I want to do this more. And so Mm. I started literally going like four times a week. I was so obsessed with it. And then eventually I was like, I want to teach this. Like, this is so healing. Like, how can I help heal Black women. How can I help heal? Really, just the Black community. And so I went away and trained for a year, and then I started teaching throughout LA. And I was introduced to this studio in Beverly Hills, and the owners was like, "We want you to come and do a mock session so we can kind of get what restorative yoga is because we we never heard of that." So I go in and do a restorative yoga session with these owners, and they're like, "Oh my God, we love it! Like we want you to start teaching here." And they're like, we'll reach out to you in a few weeks. And I was like, okay, cool. So then the next day they send me an email and they're like, wait, there's this guy. He's a VIP client. We think he'll love your type of yoga. And I was like, well, I'm really booked up. I can't, I can't teach him tomorrow. And they're like, well, he'll pay you double. And I was like, I cannot do that. Like, I don't have time. And then they came back a few hours later. It was like, he'll pay you triple. And I was like, all right, I'll be there tomorrow at 8 (laughs) 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 a.m. So I show up at 8 a.m. And I do this session with this guy. His name is Jed. And after the session, he was like, I want to train with you um, weekly. And I was like, I don't have the space right now. like, Because I was teaching privates. I was teaching classes. And I had a job. Mm-hmm. But then a week later, a client went on holiday. And so I was like, you can come in while she's away. So I started teaching jet like three times a week. And I would probably say like the third or fourth week into it, he just looked at me and said, have you ever thought about working in film and music? And I was like, no, I don't own a TV. I did not go to school for it. No, I have no interest in it. And he was like, oh, Okay. And then the next time he saw me, he asked me again. And like, this went on every time he saw me for a few weeks. (laughs) And so eventually I was like, what do you even do? Like, what is your last name? What do you do? And why do you keep asking me this? And he was like, well, my name is Jed Doherty. And I used to be the chairman of Sony Music UK. And now I just started a production company six months ago with my business partner, Colin Firth. And I was like, who is that? And he was like, what? (laughs) So then he starts naming all these films that he's done. And I was like, I've never seen them, never heard of him. And he was like, okay, I need you to watch the King speech. And then when I see you in a few days, let's discuss it. So I come back and I'm like, oh, saw the film, great film. Still don't know who this guy is. And he was like, well, that's my business partner. And I don't know why, but I'm being led to ask you to come work for us. And he was like, Mm -hmm. all my life. I've always followed my intuition and I'm doing that right now. He was like, I have no reason to be offering you this job. I don't even really know you. And I could go hire anybody in the world. But he was just like, my intuition keeps leading me to you. So I just ask that you really consider it. And then when I see you in a week and a half, um, let's really discuss it. And so I went and called one of my good friends and I called my mom and I was like, this is so wild. Like, what should I do? And my mom was like, listen, just try it for three months. You know, if you don't like it, quit. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, I, I can do this. And so when I saw Jed again, I was like, okay, listen, I'll try this for three months. And if I don't like it, I'll quit. And he was like, deal. And I did it for three months and we were in LA, but we were just really helping out. He's good friends with Simon Cowell. And so we were helping out with things on American Idol with marketing and all that. And so when the three months were over, I was like, oh, is this what filmmaking is? And he was like, no, that was me helping a friend. I need you to move to London and meet the team. And I was like, wait, what? So he was like, well, come visit first. And I was like, okay. So he got my passport expedited because it was expired. And I went to London and I was supposed to be there for two weeks. And I ended up being there for four years. And that's how it started. Because when I got there...
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: Our first film got greenlit, and so I had to move to South Africa for four months. And then that's how it started.
0: That is the best story. <laughs> I know. I mean, Oki, that is like, if you don't feel good, if you don't feel right about the world, listen to your story. That's got to bring everyone to a better place. Oh. I love
2: that he was trusting his intuition. Mm.
0: Wow. That is awesome. Oh. Amazing. But also, you know what I love about that is you always had that within you or he wouldn't have come back. Mm. And it's just the world hadn't shown you that yet. It takes courage to go in unknown areas, talk about, you know, the inevitability of change. You have to trust something to say yes. Uh, So I love that you trusted yourself.
1: Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I think him tr- trusting his intuition unlocked the portion of me that was hidden. Right. Cause like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think I would have ever pursued this industry had he not trusted his intuition. Right. And so, I mean, and I, I haven't even really ever thought about it that way into this moment, but him trusting his intuition unlocked a portion of my life that probably would have remained hidden. Um, had he not done that.
0: Mm-hmm. There are hidden angels everywhere. Mm. And also the fact that it took you to two other countries must have also opened up a whole nother realm of self-discovery.
1: Working with them took me all over the world. That four years of working Mm. with them took me everywhere from Spain to France to South Africa. Like literally it changed my life in the most beautiful and also painful way. It was hard. Like I'm not even going to act like it was all roses
2: because Mm.
1: leaving America and going into other cultures was very hard because you're conditioned Mm. to be American. Right. And so when you enter these other cultures, it's so completely different, but not only is it completely Mm. different, you also view America from the rest of the world, which is also Mm. very hard to digest at that moment.
0: Hmm. Even if you have language in common, you would assume that we just connect with everyone. Um, The three of us have been in different cultures, and it's astonishing how that is not true. And that creates a loneliness when there's no one to really share your soul with Mm. in a natural way, and you have to cultivate it. That's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like both of you have this you're on the inside, you're deep, and yourselves, you know, very unique. And then in your outer expression, you've walked your path really far. You've just gone and trusted what was inside. And I wonder as a result of that, if you had a sense of what you would wish for, like one thing or two things you wish people knew from all that you have journeyed. What do you wish people knew?
1: Um, one thing I wish people knew, and this actually came from my mother, because I was experiencing a very hard time in college. And I remember coming home and I was wailing. I was crying. And she was trying to console me and I just wouldn't let her do it. And then I ended up eventually crying myself to sleep. And I woke up the next morning and I go in my restroom. There's a note taped to my entire mirror. And the note said, the only goal you can accomplish is the one you don't go after. And that has stuck with me my entire life because it is so true. And it's not saying that the goal you go after um, will be an easy feat, But the only goal you can accomplish is the one you don't go after.
0: Mm, That is powerful.
2: What about you, Smushy? I think the biggest thing that I would say is that you're never alone. Mm -hmm. I think that oftentimes when you're doing something that nobody in your family has done before or that you don't have friends that see you or understand you around at the time or in all the ways that you want them to see you or, or in all the areas of your life, that you're never alone. And I always felt so alone. It was like really a feeling of loneliness. And I've struggled with that a lot. Like, you know, people will say it's always lonely at the top. And, mm. you know, I kind of adopted that. Like, well, I guess if I want to go to the top, it's going to be really lonely And it's just not true. And I think that for me personally, there's somebody that's popped up or somebody that's been there every step of the way. Even if it's somebody that's just temporary, it just sort of happens. And sometimes they don't come and it doesn't pop up. But um, I've had dreams of my dad that's passed away at that time or I've just felt so kind of surrounded by my ancestors. I, I remember I did this meditation once and I walked into a room and it was filled with photographs, like filled. And um, my great-great-great-grandfather was there and he was showing me, he's like, this is where you come from. You know, like, wow. and I was just like, oh my God, I come from people. Mm. Like, it's not just me. There's so many people before me that I come from that on some level energetically are rooting for me and are pushing me forward. And and then it it like shifted my entire perspective where I was like, "Oh my god, this is actually a privilege to do this. It's not me. It's not a woe is me moment. I'm so alone doing this." It's like I get to do this for all the people that couldn't or I get to do this and then create my own thing. And it's hard, but you're never alone. Mm.
1: I love
0: that. It really brings so much comfort and Mm -hmm. so much courage. Wow, I love those things. And you? (laughs) Snap. Um, hmm. Well, if there was one thing I wish people knew, like everyone, it would be that actually we are designed with love in the design. It's our fabric, that we really are love. It's not a philosophy. It's not a religious teaching, Uh, you know, in a book. It's because it's real. We actually are only designed from love and we're that, and that we cannot actually exist on this plane with the concept of, quote-unquote, other. We cannot be other. No one, and I mean no one, can be other. There's just us. And if we knew that, that even it couldn't exist in our minds, which I think creates mental disease and it couldn't exist in our heart which I think creates heart disease there is only love in us and there only is us I wish we knew that so we could start creating and co-creating and designing a place where we prosper where everyone prospers oh you guys want to do a slumber party More is better.
1: (laughs) We should definitely bring that back. Like, I think that, like, we, it's so important to play as adults, right? And we forget that. And so I think we should definitely bring that back because, you know, we think that playing stops in childhood. And it's like, no.
2: Nope, nope. It's so true. Well, I have a little back house I've, Turned into my
1: little she-shed, so if you guys want to come over. Yes. Yes, Julie, whenever you're back in L.A., we're going to make that happen.
0: Okay, Ogie. I love it. That's my happy place. (laughs) Although I will put the slumber in slumber party. (laughs) Listen, I value my sleep, too. I really do. Oh, my gosh guys. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful having this moment of just Mm -hmm. conversation, being together. Thank you,
1: Ogi. I know. Thank you for having me. It's always a joy to be in communion. Mm -hmm. I love it. So yeah, thank you for cultivating this space.
0: Thank you for making this space. (laughs) Well, until next time. Until next time. (laughs) Bye. Bye, you guys. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find the
2: Butterfly Forecast every Tuesday with a new episode available wherever you do your podcasting. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Hope to see you then. We'll see you next time.